1: Hey everybody, welcome to It Never Rains on this podcast. I'm Hithloday, I'm the managing editor for Addicted to Quack, it's a website. Joining me this week is one of the great ATQ writers, Adam Holland, how you doing? I'm doing
0: well, lots of uh, hoops action to talk, and then uh, yeah, I think we're going to get into a little discussion about Oregon's offensive line, so it should be a fun segment today. Well
1: you've been covering uh, men's basketball a lot lately, Um, and what a roller coaster it has been. Yes. Um, <laughs> how's that beat been for you, Adam?
0: <laughs> Man, it. Uh, I, I was never quite sure what to expect from this basketball team heading into the season. I had high hopes, and there have been times that um, those hopes have been stymied and times that those hopes have felt crushed. Um, <clears throat> amazingly enough, we are sitting here still in early February with uh, Oregon in the upper tier of the conference. They are now fourth in the Pac-12. And uh, they do have slim, turny hopes uh, that I think very well could hinge on this coming weekend. Uh, Because this coming weekend is probably going to be realistically... Now, you know, I I feel like I could jinx it saying this, but realistically, these are the last teams that should pose a serious threat to Oregon in the the regular season. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and UCLA are both very good teams. Uh, after that, you know, you have you have Washington schools up in there. You never know what can happen up there, but neither team looks particularly dangerous. Oregon State, as usual, is a joke in basketball, so that shouldn't be a problem. And then you have the uh, Bay Area schools coming up. Yes, Stanford did pull off that that crazy win, but it seems like weird stuff always happens in the Bay, and they they never seem to have any trouble taking care of them up, up here. So really, uh, the performance this weekend, I think is really what's going to spell it out for Oregon. Um, I had pointed out in a previous article <clears throat> before they had faced Arizona uh, that they had uh, two top 10 teams left to face, Arizona and UCLA, and that they needed to win one of those games to get into the tournament. They had to win one. I said they win both. I think they're in. Uh, they didn't win at Arizona. Arizona uh, pretty much you know put them away. And, um, it's, it's okay. You know what I mean? That, that is like, a you know, it's yeah. All, I mean, that news.
1: series over the last Jesus, 20 years has been the home court battle, you know, like whoever's in the game very
0: much. And so that's, that's, that's why we have a rivalry with Arizona and basketball because it's back and forth. And so we took care of business in our court. They took care of business in their court. Arizona's on a roll. So really not too much shame in losing to them. I thought the ducks did a great job bouncing back against Arizona state. They almost gave it away. So kind of freaked me out yeah. a little bit. Uh, but they they were able to come through in the clutch and hang on, and I think that showed a lot of grit, and I think it fares well uh, heading into this weekend's matchup.
1: You know, it, the game against Arizona in McHale, I mean, obviously, you know, they they basically ran Arizona off the court in in Matt court um, a, a few weeks ago, um, and this game... Like it never really felt like Oregon was in control, and then lost control or anything. Like Arizona was in control this entire game. Yeah. Um. You know, and and I. You know the the. <sighs> The box score looks the way that you would basically how you would expect it to look. Arizona shot a little better than fifty percent from the floor. They did very well from the three point line. You know, forty three percent from the three point line, which is about ten points better than average. Um, uh, their big man Tabellis uh, uh, had a great night. Uh, You know, 40 points, which is just incredible, which is and especially interesting because against Oregon in Eugene earlier, like they totally shut him down. Like he had one of the worst nights of his career, and it's like, you know, super hot and cold for that guy, um, you know, uh, against Oregon. And then meanwhile, Oregon, you know, shoots 34% from the three-point line. It's about what you expect, but they're only 41% from the floor, um, which is like – you know, I know in your article, you were like Oregon's defense sort of, you know, let them down in this game. And when they give up 91 points, it's, it's hard to avoid, you know, concluding that, you know, Arizona, you know, got what 58 shots on the floor, you know, I sort of had a different take. I, I was sort of, you know, I was disappointed with, with Oregon's shooting performance. Um, you know, uh, uh, Cousinard shot badly uh Bartholomew shot badly um Gary basically like he played 21 minutes and had two points like um on the other hand you know Will Richardson who's sort of been like the scapegoat for a lot of problems you know for Oregon's offensive performance had a pretty good night you know shots done for 10 you know yeah. uh, uh, uh three for four from three-point line he every one of his free throws. Um, you know, I, I Lord, I'll, I'll never know. You know what the deal with Will Richardson is. Uh, actually, let me stop there. Hey, Adam, you got any idea what the deal
0: with Will Richardson is? <laughs> Honestly, <clears throat> it's 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 the same thing that has plagued the team in general, and um, I think that it's no coincidence that there's a pattern here. And uh, as Will Richardson goes, so the team goes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I said heading into the season. That this was really his chance to step up and kind of be the man. I don't think he was ever completely comfortable being that guy on the floor. You know, mm-hmm. um, he had he had Pritchard there, and he was you know a, a good second option there. And then um, you you know you head into last season, and then uh, it was kind of like finally he was kind of you know we, we had some some guys brought in that were that were good players, but it seemed as though last year was the first time that you really kind of had like Richardson front and center. And uh, it, it was just so back and forth. Um, you know, you, the guy can be brilliant one night and just kind of mediocre the next. And um, unfortunately, even though he has been playing better this season than last year, uh, altogether statistically, he's still very hot and cold. And really, I think when he shows up with that energy, particularly on the defensive end, because this is the one thing that critics of Will Richardson don't quite... Pick up on enough is that when the guy's on, it's, it's, you can see it on defense more than anywhere else. The, the guy, the guy is just, you know, he, he can turn into a lockdown defender when he wants to. And I think that when he turns on his defensive engines, it really revs the rest of the team up. You, you see that. You saw it a lot when Arizona came up here. Richardson was so active on the defensive end. He was, Creating turnovers, he was he was bothering you know players on the wing. You saw how many times Arizona gave the ball up. Uh, Richardson <clears throat> was the one forcing most of that to happen. Granted, Dante was you know protecting the paint, but on the perimeter, it was it was mostly Richardson. And so, like when when Richardson isn't doing well and he's not plugged in defensively, I think you 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 see that kind of resonate with the rest of the team. And so that's why you've seen so much up and down if you can get Richardson really plugged in for this last month of the season here really like you know pl- playing full throttle just like you know nothing held back Oregon could easily go on one of those signature Dana Altman runs that we've we've become so used to where they just look like a completely different team heading into March or you know he can keep up the inconsistency and the inconsistencies will probably continue for Oregon uh, really I mean, uh, maybe I'm putting too much on on the guy but just from what I've observed, you know what I mean? It's, it, it really kind of is his squad to, to lead.
1: I, I I understand what you're saying, and I think you're probably right. That, like, if he doesn't show up, then, you know, Oregon has diminished chances because he's the point guard. He's the leader. He's, you know, supposed to be, you know, the the distributor and the captain. Like, I you know, I understand that. But, like, look, man, I, I think he did a pretty good job of that, all things considered uh, against Arizona. And I really feel like the rest of the team just like didn't show up, you know, like I I think the performance of the rest of the team against Arizona was pretty pathetic. You know, I've already mentioned that, you know, Cousinard and Bethelmy only had eight points. It, they, that blew out of the water, the amount of points that, you know, Nate Biddle, who started the game, you know, who shot one basket and missed it, uh, you know, he got two points from the free throw line. Uh, Kahlil Ware somehow was back in the game, even though, you know, Dana Alden spent the last two weeks chewing his house out. Uh, he gets five points. Uh, Rigsby got three points. Gary got two points. Uh, you know, like, I, I don't know, you know, like, I don't know how much you can put on Will Richardson in this game. I don't really even think you can put any of it on, you know, on him. Like yeah, Oregon shot 41% from the floor, uh, uh, will Richardson shot 70% from the floor, you know, like that's how bad the rest of the team performed. Um, mm-hmm. And it's not, you know, it ain't a one man game, <laughs> at least not in college no. basketball, uh, you know, and, and on the defensive end, like, you know, I I, I don't know what you do about to Bellis, um But if he's scoring 40 points, you got to take away the three point shot. And Oregon wasn't taking away the three point shot. Yeah, you know, like you know, Arizona shooting ten points above average. You know, uh, at the three, you know, they scored thirty points via the three point arc. Um, like, I don't know, man. Like, I, I'm all for 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 yelling at Will Richardson for not showing up in a game because he does that about like I don't know fifty percent of the time, um, or whatever it is. Uh, but like, man, this game, I knew mean, it was painful to watch because you know. I was like watching the women's basketball side who like we're gonna talk about them in a minute not being able to make a basket like it's just like dude dude, put the ball in the basket, you know, and like that wasn't will Richardson's problem in this game. do you think I'm yeah. like do you think I'm uh, too
0: far out on a limb here? no no, no no <clears throat> um actually, I think you know as far as this particular game goes, I think you have a good point um it's 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 just uh I think what I was referring to was was more of kind of like a pattern that I've seen over the course of the season. Uh let's let's take a look at, you know, you know, if you're if you're taking away the Arizona game in which, you know, Richardson had 22 points, you you have to, you know, go back to other losses. What were some bad losses? Well, obviously the Stanford loss was, you know, sure. a pretty embarrassing one to have. Stanford's pretty much a bottom dweller in that one um you know and in and, and in that game, Richardson goes two for nine from the floor for five points, oh and yeah what happened no a hundred percent yeah yeah and then and then, they, and then they lose and then in one of the you know most lopsided pitiful losses that that kind of had me ranting and raving um up in Colorado i know I know that that's not a a friendly place for us to play by any you know stretch of the imagination. But you have Richardson going one for nine from the floor for five points again in that in that game. He didn't show up at all. Oregon gets you know so less of it being a problem against Arizona because I thought he really did play well against Arizona and and I feel like lately he's started to turn a little bit of a corner because even against Arizona State when they got blown out he still scored sixteen points. I think just as a pattern over the course of the season, I've seen poor performances by him translate into ugly losses for Oregon. I mean,
1: like going forward. Yeah. I mean, if your point is Will Richardson needs to show up for Oregon to beat the LA teams and have a shot at the tournament or or if Oregon wants to get it in the back door by winning the PAC 12 tournament, will Richardson's performance is is necessary for that to happen? Like absolutely agree. But, um, my argument is I think it's a necessary, but not sufficient condition. Like will Richardson can can show up and the team will still, you know, lose by double digits if the rest of the team doesn't show up. And like this year's team has a real rest of the team, not showing up problem. Um, which is I mean it it sometimes makes watching Oregon basketball painful um because it's like guys you're all five stars you know like what are you doing like you know because there are points where I'm watching this team and like none of these guys belong on the floor uh and uh you know and and sort of like a lot of people have been asking questions about like you know Dana Altman lost his edge I don't I'm I, I still have faith in the guy. I, you know, I think that I, 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 think that he knows what he's doing. And I think you just, you know, what we're looking at is modern basketball, in which like, do you know, you get a bunch of one and dones you get a bunch of five stars, and then you see if they can play together. And it'll sort of, you know, oftentimes it turns out like, nope, gotta wait for the next cycle. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Are you are you in that territory yet? The like, gotta <laughs> wait for the next cycle.
0: Um, I, I I am, and and to be honest, I've, I'm I'm not. Granted, I the past couple seasons, you know, it has it hasn't been as Altman esque as we've become accustomed to, but at the same time, you have to look at like the level of success and recruitment that Dana has brought to Oregon, and I think it's kind of you know it's he, he's been there long enough that people are forgetting how it was before he got there, and you know you're you're, you're talking about under, you know, Ernie Kent, no you know, don't, no disrespect to the guy. He was a great coach and a great guy. Uh, but, you know, you see him able to take just a couple teams on, on deep tournament runs. And those two teams were just loaded with, you know, upperclassmen experience and guys that had just played together for years. And those were the only teams that he was really able to, you know, get together and, and go on a deep tournament run. As soon as he lost those cores of guys, you saw what happened. You know what I mean? Like, they, you know, they got to the Elite Eight in 2002. As soon as that core group kind of dissipated, they faded into obscurity. Brought in another class that took a while to build up. In 2007, it culminates in the Elite Eight. What happens after they leave? Fade into obscurity again. Yep. Altman has done a really good job of not allowing this team to fade into obscurity. He is, you know, he's he's brought in some amazing players. It's that have definitely like reload every players. year. Like it's definitely yeah, and, like and every you know, year
1: you're like up on. Holy crap! This is a talented team. And even in games in which they're not playing well, which you know we see more than one of those this year, you're like you can see the talent. Like the talent yeah. is unmistakable.
0: Um, you know, well, and, the, and, ser- the, and and. To a degree, the results are there, too, because, you know, one thing I've said a lot, uh, you know, regarding football is that, you know, fans that have been around since like the 2010s forward are spoiled. They're just kind of like, oh, they don't realize how good they have it because, you know, they have to look back further into the early 90s to see how Oregon really came from. And I think that basketball fans of Oregon are kind of spoiled, too, because they're used to being like... We're a 20 plus win team and we're in the NCAA tournament every year, and Altman has never failed to win 20 games any of the years he's been here. and it used to be 20 wins in the season was like, oh my God, let's let's make a D- commemorative DVD about this season." Hmm. So you got to give the guy his props.
1: Do you think that uh, the ass chewing the Clell wear got uh, you know got through to him?
0: I hope so. Um, <clears throat> you look at Kahlil and, and you, you see what, what you, you see a lot of times happen with, with five-star recruits. Um, they come in being just kind of like the cream of the crop. You know what I mean? Like where they, you know, they, are on all American teams They're you know, showing out, they're already getting NIL offers and whatnot. And then they get on the big stage, and it's like, oh, geez, okay. There's a lot of other guys here, my size. There's a lot of other guys here, my ability. I'm not quite used to this. Um, I do think Kalel Ware has has great, great talent and great potential. I do think you're just you're you know you're just seeing a little bit of freshman frustration here. Um, I thought that um, honestly, I thought that the uh, <clears throat> maybe a little a uh, little bit shallow to say this, um, but I I do think maybe the haircut. Showed that he's maybe starting to take things a little more seriously, you know, because the guy was always rocking his his cornrows and his dreads, and then he let it all loose and you know looked like a a giant screech out there on the court. And then he comes back, you know, with his trimmed hair, looking a little more cleaned up. And I think maybe, yeah, you're you're thinking maybe the guy's taking it a little more seriously. Like, hey, I'm five star. I'm seven foot. I can play inside and outside. I've got all the skill. It doesn't matter though if I'm not going to put the effort in. And I think, you know, if any coach is going to drill that into his head, it's Dana who knows how to take bottom of the barrel players and turn them into absolute studs by March. That's only from work ethic. You know, the only way you get there is from work ethic. And so, yes, I, I, I am hopeful that Dana's message got through and I would be leaning more towards that you will see a different Kalel wear moving forward.
1: I mean, honestly, the thing that I want more than anything else is is to see guys drive into the iron. Um, you know, it's the thing that, like, really frustrates me more than anything else. You know, the way that modern basketball is played is it's an interior game. Um, it, it's an interior game to set up your, you know, exterior shots or if they're you know, selling out to stop the exterior, then you, you know, drive to the paint and even better, uh, you know, you draw fouls because that's how you play, you know, defense with your offense. And like, that's what I liked seeing against Arizona state, you know, Oregon shot 26, free throws against Arizona state, you know, ASU only shot 10 you know, Oregon was getting fouled, um, cause they were going inside and Oregon was shooting their free throws fairly well. You know, uh, Dante was four for four, uh, which is sort of surprised to see him get a perfect game. Uh, but so was Will Richardson, you know, perfect from the charity stripe. Um, yeah. you know, Kuznard got, uh, you know, five free throw opportunities. Biddle got four, Gary got four, Ware got four. Um, you know, like, you know, you wind up picking up a lot of points that way. And it's just like, just from a game theory perspective, like, you know, look, man, you know, average shooting performance of 50% from the floor. So you get one point per shot and, and, and 33% from the charity arc. So you get one point per shot. Like, but it, 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 if you get fouled, then a, you should be shooting higher than 50% from the free throw line. Uh, you have opportunities to create three or even four point plays. Um, you know, you should be shooting, you know, more like 80, 90%, you know, from the charity stripe and you create a foul for the, you know, opposition, uh, which, you know, those eventually accumulate and it affects the way that they rotate, you know, their teams, just like there are so many from a game theory perspective, it's so much better to drive to the inside and try to get fouled. Uh, it, it blows my mind that, you know, more t- that that this isn't the the offensive strategy. And you know, it's what I was seeing against Arizona State. I really like that. Um and even though guys were not, you know, it wasn't really a great shooting night, you know, like Cousinard, like all these guys who like at various points in the season, we've been saying like, oh, the rise of X. You know, the rise of Jermaine Cousinard. well, he shot, you know, two for eight from the Florida. The rise of Nate Biddle, he shot two for six from the floor. The rise of Rivaldo Source, he shot three for six. You know, the rise of Quincy Garia. he shot one for two uh uh you know Rigsby played two minutes against ASU like this was not a great performance for anybody except for Will Richardson and then of all things uh still probably a little bit injured in Folly Dante and Keyshawn Bartholomew who like talk about a hot and cold dude you know like you know we spent all this time talking about how hot and cold Will Richardson is. Like, can we talk about how hot and cold Keyshawn Bartholomew is, Jermaine Cousinard is, or Nate Biddle, or Gary or Sorzo, Like the entire team is hot and cold. Well, oh, yeah. guess what? You know, is the cure for hot and cold is driving to the iron. Um, and that's what they're doing against ASU. It's just like, guys, you know, some physicality, please.
0: Do you, he, yeah, you
1: know, I'll stop there again and ask. Do you think I'm too far out on this limb?
0: No, no. Um, <clears throat> I think honestly. That as much as the game has evolved and people like to run and gun and it's all about you know hoisting up thirty five footers and see what hits, uh, that it you know it's 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 still if you can play inside outside um, you know start with the inside feeds and open up the outside game that that's going to make a huge difference, and um, yeah no it 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 has kind of befuddled me uh, why Oregon isn't attacking more Uh, because if you if you look at at who they have. On the floor, you have guys that take up space. No matter what lineup they have, yeah, they're going to have a they're going to have a seven footer in it because yeah, you exactly. have Dante, you have Biddle, you have Ware. You're always going to have a guy guys taking up space in there. A lot of times, they have two of those guys playing at once. And you, you have these these lanes that are open to the basket because of the space and the attention that those guys demand. And instead, these guys are just backing up, squaring up, and hoisting three-pointers when really, if you look at it, you see these clear lanes. And if the three-pointers are falling, like they, you know what I mean, like it's just raining threes, sure, let them rip. There's no problem. But if you're just hitting back iron over and over and over again, you got to think, okay, this is, you know, if I have the space to attack, points got to come from somewhere. So I, I, I think you have a good point there. Yeah, I mean, you're
1: not drawing like this thing, the NBA and these guys named James Harden. Like they're not drawing fouls, shooting threes by kicking the leg. Like,
0: yeah,
1: you know, like NCAA refs are just not gonna call that shit. Like, uh, the you know like i understand the steph curry like demoralizing or you know damian Little or whatever like shoot from the logo stuff like yeah if you can hit 40 percent from you know such a long distance that the defense doesn't even think to defend you like you know cool you know that's cool uh but like man those are edge cases you know um, unless you can turn that into something other than the edge case like it is always more productive to draw to the iron like it, it, it accomplishes three things, you know, it gets you, you know, it, it's a, it's a sure basket. It's definitely more sure to shoot from the charity stripe. And it puts your opponent into foul trouble, which are down to your benefit in like six different ways. Like, I don't know. I feel every week we wanted to talking about basketball in this podcast. And every week I wind up saying the same thing. We just drive to the iron. Like, I don't, you know, like maybe, maybe I should quit this job and start coaching basketball. Cause like, I don't understand how this isn't like a message that gets repeated about a million times in every practice. Um, uh, all right. That's enough of that. Let's uh, take a break. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk some women's hoops. This episode is brought to you by Shopify, whether you're selling a little So uh, the women's basketball team has not been up and down. Uh, they've just been down. You know, they've lost five of the last six um, in, in conference play. Uh, you know, this is probably the most talented team uh, in the conference, uh, you know, on paper. Uh, what do you think is going on with this team, Adam?
0: Lack of cohesion. Mm-hmm. Um, players not understanding their roles on the floor. Uh, really, when it comes down to that, like you said, like most talented team on paper um, and you're not producing. That's that's what it is. Uh, you you can have five star players all over the place, but if they don't understand what their particular role is and what they should be doing well, it's 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 never going to spell well. Uh, the the teams that <clears throat> have produced the most success for Oregon have always been the teams that just everybody understood what their role was, and uh, in this sense, it's I, I think when you look at it. Um, an easy way to see if people aren't understanding their roles is when you have frustrating close losses. Um, and two that particularly stood out to me uh, happened in mid-January when they, they lost by one point against Washington State and three points against Oregon State. In um, those senses, and even against Stanford you know what I mean where they hung right with them most of the time, you just you get into the clutch and, and all of a sudden, it's it's just kind of like nobody quite understands what to do. Nobody really wants to, you know, be in the right spot where they need to be. The ball's just kind of, you know, moving around aimlessly. There's not a lot of movement, there's not a lot of, you know, pick and roll, there's not of, And that's got to stop, particularly when you have a, a close game, even if it's against an opponent you're favored to beat or if it's an opponent like Stanford where it's like, wow, this is a chance to really, you know, knock off a behemoth. You have to be organized in those situations. And from the women's team unfortunately, I've seen them play really well, especially, you know, against two top 10 teams, Utah and Stanford, but they can't close it out. And the reason they can't close it out is lack of organization. Uh, for some reason, Graves has not been able to get this team properly organized. I don't know if that's what you're noticing, too.
1: Well, I don't know, man. It's difficult for me to figure this one out. Like, or actually, I'll put it this way. Right up until they played Utah, I thought I had this team figured out. Um Cause you know, the, the, the couple days before they played Colorado and like the Colorado game at home, we should say both of these games against mountain schools were, uh, played Mac court. Um, uh, you know, the, the Colorado game was just like, Oh, what a perfect capstone to this like crap shooting season to go a, a perfect zero for 16 from the three point line. Um, yeah. And, and shoot 36 percent from the floor you know like you know just you know all, all season long you know that's uh, you know on this podcast every week i'm just like look at all these ladies with just like absolute clunker performances you know, you know shooting the ball like they play pretty good defense but like can't put you know like so against you know colorado uh tahina pow pow shoots one for nine from the floor in 35 minutes of play uh, uh chance gray in 26 minutes of play also shoots one for nine day hansen in 22 minutes of play shoots one for six um you know just like oh it's more the ice cold hands ducks you know like and i really don't have anything more to say about the colorado game. it's not like colorado you know shot you know real great uh they no. didn't it's just that you know oregon shot you know it's far worse i mean it's like the stanford game all over again except stanford's a talented team and colorado's kind of not you know but like you can't miss every single one of your three-point and win a game it's just like so anyway like i really didn't have much to like say you know i was ready to just like not parade up and down it's like i was happy about her or anything but like i figured i had this team figured out and then i watched them play utah and this is like everything was upside down right you know it's like okay so they lose to utah they give up 100 points but i believe is the most like points that a graves team has ever given up but they score 92 they, yeah they shoot 47% from the three-point line. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, like, uh, uh, Tay Hansen had a great game. You know, I was making fun of Tay Hansen. For like three weeks straight, I've been making fun of Tay Hansen. Uh, uh, which is probably a bad idea, because I think she could beat the crap out of me. Like, <laughs> like, oh my god, I'm so, like, jealous for traps. Anyway, the, uh, like, the you know uh you know a great shooting performance out of out of a team that like couldn't get a great shooting performance to save their lives for like 6 weeks straight uh and, 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 and like okay so Utah gets real hot you know like real hot they shoot 52% from beyond the three point arc they shoot 62% from the floor and like i think that Oregon's a pretty good defensive team like i don't think Well, I'll ask you this. I want to know your opinion, but let me just finish the thought. I didn't think that Oregon was playing terrible defense against Utah. I think that Utah scored 100 points because they were just, like, on fire. And this just happens mm-hmm. in basketball teams or basketball games. So like, defense will cause the opponent to go up and down maybe, like, five. You know, if you're playing really bad defense, then they'll shoot 55%. If you're playing really good defense, they'll shoot 45%. But when you see, like, crazy numbers, when you see, like, 62 you know, from the floor, it just means that they're just like out of their minds and there's nothing you can do to stop it. And the only thing you can do is score a lot of points to try to keep up, which is what Oregon did. They just like came a little short. And so it's sort of like, even though they lost this game and even though they sort of like broke a record, I guess I was sort of like, this was a really encouraging performance. Like, I really liked watching this game. Uh Do you think I'm crazy? What do you think about this th- Everything no, that no I no. just said, both the Utah game and then that sort of general theory about like sometimes people's hands are on fire and it doesn't matter how well you're playing defense. What do you think?
0: Well, no. yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, and the thing is, uh, if you if you, you want to, you know, look at the the, uh, the shooting percentage of Utah, like even though know, you mentioned like the 62 percent overall uh, between the between the second and third quarters, They were shooting seventy, like almost 77% from I know, the middle two frames. (laughs) They hit
1: more than three quarters of their shots. They were uh, 23 for 30 in the middle two frames, Utah was. Yeah, that is insane. Which is like, yeah, that's absolutely bonkers. (laughs) Which, like, I don't think that's because Oregon hit the locker room and were not on the floor for those two frames and not bothering to play defense. I think it's because they were just shooting out of their flipping minds. And there's just like you know when when that that a that happens sometimes and b the only thing you can do about it is to try to outshoot them and c Oregon came pretty close to outshooting them and for a team that like you know at times felt felt like they couldn't
0: outshoot a jv high school team i was like hey cool yeah well i mean <clears throat> honestly it's 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 going to be an issue if um a team gets that hot, uh, for sure. But then if you, you, know, you look at some of the other games, and it's, 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 you, know, you, you look at the shooting percentages of these teams in the fourth quarter, uh, like I said, this is kind of like where I was coming in with like the organizational thing. Because if, if you look at every fourth quarter in these losses, you know, the teams are shooting 50% or better from the field. And so that's like I said, I mean, Utah, again, it's, it, it, Utah it's their worst. Offensive. Utah's yeah. worst shooting performance was in the fourth quarter. Well, Utah, yeah, but that, I mean, like I said, some more of these other you know losses that I was talking. Well, I know, about, but that's why, these, like, oh, that's why I le- let off like introducing this game is like this game was so yeah. upside down.
1: It was yeah, totally so, upside down.
0: It's it's it is really tough to follow, you know, how, exactly what the problem with this team was. Yeah, uh, but the, the I I guess like I said, the reason I was bringing up organization was just because of you know not not only offensively but defensively. Sometimes in these frustrating losses, you would see that they were unable to ever keep teams below fifty percent in the fourth quarter. Oftentimes, teams hitting in the upper sixties in the fourth quarter, which it's it's not going to spell good things in a close game. Utah. Uh, that was just a, that was a crazy game, and, and I agree. It just kind of like, uh, much like the men's team, just kind of makes you scratch your head at this point. <laughs> Not really sure what to make of it.
1: Well, the Leeds are heading down to Los Angeles this weekend to um, take on USC and UCLA. Uh, what do you make of their chances? Oh, boy.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, you know, that you have another top 20 team in UCLA. Um, USC... You know, granted they're they you know they're not really a, a juggernaut by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, I, I I would be happy if if they could at least get a split. I, I I think that they can they can win against USC. I don't see that being a game that they cannot win. I'm doubtful for UCLA, but then again, they have really upped their intensity level when they face these opponents. ala Stanford and Utah, so. Anything's possible. Um, Honestly, if you're asking me, I'd say best case scenario, they get a split. Mm.
1: All right, let's take a break. Uh, We come back. We'll talk a little football. Well, uh, I uh, have finished up my um, film study on Tulane. Uh, I have scheduled uh, a, a podcast interview with a Tulane uh, media person for Thursday, and I'm shooting for next Thursday to, to publish my article about Chris Hampton, Oregon's new uh, co-DC and safeties coach, who was Tulane's defensive coordinator. Um, but we'll put off talking about that um, uh, uh, for a little while. Uh, the news of the week uh, on Monday it was announced that uh, Adrian Clark. Clem, um, Oregon's offensive line coach, will be uh, taking the same job with the New England Patriots. Um, You know, a a lot of Oregon fans were like, oh, you know, why can't uh, Oregon, uh, you know, hang on to a coach for more than a year? Like, what a stepping stone program this is. What do you just like emotionally or or like, what do you make of that take? Like, what what did you feel um, about that departure? And like, you, you know, do you, were you sad about that, or what do you think?
0: I I hate to see the guy go. Uh, oh. A lot of times, when you have a coach that's done a very good job of a particular unit, that you're always going to be sad to see them go. Um, I think that it is, it's definitely just a byproduct of the success that we've seen, and that's it's it's a good thing in the sense that it's like. It used to be, especially during the Bilotti years, you would see much, much more longevity with who was coaching the various positions. Why was that? Uh, probably because, you know, as as, as as good as Bilotti had some of those teams going, there wasn't enough consistency with how well they performed year in and year out. <clears throat> Oregon's offensive line, the past four to five years, has been their absolute staple. They, uh, and, and, you know. Hell, man, I would say two decades. Uh, I mean. Yeah, I mean, you know, particularly I've noticed, particularly the Cristobal years. Trash on Cristobal, I know. You know, the guy, the guy jumped ship. So it's like, oh, screw you. But the guy knew how to recruit offensive linemen. And he knew what to, you know, he knew what to do with them. And uh, when, when the units perform that well, and you you know you have guys like uh Panay Sewell who are like even being discussed in the Heisman conversation as an offensive lineman you mm. you're, you're going to get people looking at you you're going to get people being like damn you know these guys they're loaded up front what are they doing right and because of that it's 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 just a byproduct you're you're going to have you know NFL teams come calling you're going to have bigger contracts shoved in their faces and it's just something we got to deal with
1: yeah, I mean, I, I honestly, I think it's a good sign. You know, like, this is what Alabama, you know, deals with every year. Um, you know, like, uh, honestly they're they're you know i study a lot of the pac-12 teams and i write preview articles every year in which i go through their entire coaching staff and list of changes and like you know it, it may sound a little weird coming from Oregon fan where oregon for a long time is like a staple of longevity in fact some of my if you go back and read some of my earliest posts i'm talking about like you know, like I really feel like that's an asset to the program. I think the game has changed, you know, and I think it's an acknowledge and like, you know, money has been freed up to pay assistance. You know, it used to be that assistants were probably pretty significantly underpaid and they're paid a little more like market value now. And, uh, you know, honestly, like if your staff is sticking around for 10 years, then that indicates that the market doesn't want your staff um, and it indicates that there's a problem. Um, you know, you need to be moving through you know, moving, you know, guys from, you know, assistants to coordinators, coordinators to head coaches, you know, and cycling through and being able to replace them. It's as much about reloading at your staff positions now as it is at your, you know, on the, on the field player personnel. And you have to constantly be, you know, aware of who the up and comers are. And it's one of the things that I respect about, you know, Lanning is I think he's done a very good job of hiring. Um and I think he's done a very good job of uh, identifying young talent. He sort of I think because he's a younger coach himself, he's, you know, tends to go after younger guys. Um and uh I, I think that works for the team culture. You know, one of the things that I sort of can I have to say I was consistently applauding about watching their film in 2022 is it like it's an analytically driven you know team that you know they play the percentages they figured out the ways in in college in modern college football the ways that you actually score points and you actually win games um not like sort of preconceived you know or ideologically driven you know notions and it's one of the things that I've appreciated about you know that so far I've done two you know uh studies uh on nuke staff members will Stein and, and Chris Hampton. I, I will do a study on whoever the new offensive line, uh, coaches. And frankly, you know, with Adrian Clem, I think it's sort of a mixed bag, uh, you know, in terms of seeing him go, like, you know, I wrote an article last year, um, at around this time, you know, when he was hired and like, i should had, pretty mixed feelings about Adrian Clem um you know I, I definitely you know I, I I straight up did not like what I was seeing out of his offensive lineman's play at UCLA on the other hand he wound up putting all those guys in the NFL and like they're all still playing I, I believe it was like eight out of twelve of yeah. you know, of the dudes who went through that I watched film on are still playing in the NFL today which like is crazy um you know he definitely has the eye, uh, you know, for, for finding the talent. Um, you know, I understand that UCLA was a bit of a mess, you know, when he arrived and he probably had to get guys playing earlier than like, you know, uh, than he probably would have liked to. And so that was probably a real nice, um, you know, convenience when he arrived at Oregon is the euro arrived and like took over a functioning machine. Um, yeah, sort of like chip Kelly in reverse. um, uh uh, you know where he goes from taking over a functioning machine at oregon then goes to ucla where it's like non-functional and like clem gets to do the opposite of that um and like it's sort of i mean frankly it's difficult to evaluate how good of an offensive line coach he was in 2022 because he like he inherited a totally functional line um it, you know, uh, you know, I don't know how much coaching he had to do. You know, on the other hand, there were some like young players, you know, uh, uh, you know, Powers Johnson was still young enough that he's got his fingerprints on that guy. Um, you know marcus harper uh played very well as a young player on the other hand he was constantly getting called for the ineligible downfield uh you know which like if i can think of one thing that an offensive line coach should probably be like getting on a dude about it would be that (laughs) didn't seem like it ever happened um you know on like you know the pats blog the sb nation uh Pats blog contacted me when he when clem was um interviewing to be the offensive coordinator in new england and like we, everybody was sort of taken aback by that and you know i had to be honest with the with the new england folks is like i don't understand why this is happening yeah I, my I, I don't think he was really involved in play calling or anything and then i you know the we Sort of, you know, in a different light now that maybe that was really his interview to be the offensive line coach there, um, you know. But even then, like I still don't, you know, if I had to write an article right now evaluating how good of an offensive line coach Adrian Clem, you know, was, you know, I, I I'm not sure what I would write, you know, like it's like you know, I I'll put it this way, like I chart offensive line numbers, I chart it for not just for Oregon but for the entire Pac-12, and I sort of developed a well i developed the statistical model which predicts you know how well i expect guys to do and if they do better than that i attribute that to good coaching and if they do worse than that i attribute it to bad coaching and for what my model would predict for oregon's 2022 performance they came in as exactly as predicted which means that Clem didn't sabotage them so that's good you know like uh, from reviewing the UCLA tape you know sabotaging them was a possibility (laughs) and and given that he's being like there are several active lawsuits going on from former UCLA offensive linemen against the school and the Adrian Clem personally for like abusive you know allegedly like abusive behavior which I don't know. You know, which does not seem to have been the case at Oregon. So, like... That's a relief, you know, didn't, didn't and then bad. This, this
0: day and age in Asian society, you have to take that with a grain of salt anyway. Well, who
1: knows? <laughs> I'm just saying yeah. that like, it didn't, didn't seem like there's any lawsuits coming out of his time at Oregon. Um, And that was something else that really concerned me, you know, when I wrote that article, you know, cause I, I had to do that background research. I had to read those articles. And I mean, I put in my article, you know, last year in, in January or early February in 2022, you know, when I wrote this article, I put a couple of links in and then I put a, a content warning in because it was like it's upsetting the stuff that's alleged um mm-hmm. like is i mean it's generally some some of that stuff stomach turning and like i had to write an article about like the the rabdo stuff at oregon that stuff's stomach turning too um like you know a lot of the stuff in college football is stomach turning like and that 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 was up there um but it didn't seem like you know there was any sort of problem with that so that, you know that was good but like that's sort of the best i can say of the guy you know at least in terms of the, you know, that I can back up with real concrete data is like, he didn't seem to sabotage the line. He didn't seem to abuse those players. They played at the level that I would have expected him to as a replacement value coach. Um, yeah. it, a lot, I have seen like a lot of Oregon fans online be like, you know, argue that the offensive line was better in 2022 than it was in 2021. And like, I don't think that's true at all. Um, no. or like, we just had a better quarterback. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like they yeah. point to like the sack rate, but like quarterback is you know, sacks for a quarterback stat. Yeah, yeah, you know, exactly you put your finger on it exactly. Like Bo Nix has elite escapability. Um, you know, uh, uh you know, the line was letting through pressure at the same rate that they were letting through against mm-hmm. Anthony Brown in 2021. It's just that Nix was better at escaping it. Um yeah.
0: Uh, it's there's really similar rushing statistics too yeah exactly Um, like every
1: every stat that i collect and i collect a whole array of them because i chart every game and i grade every player on every snap like every stat that i collect it's it's not exactly the 2021 performance because there are some differences but like the the it's what you would expect like it the there is absolute here i'll say this as clearly as i can there is absolutely no data from the 2022 season that indicates that Adrian Clem did an above and beyond performance as the offensive line coach. There is data to indicate that he didn't sabotage the team. The very extensive data to indicate that he didn't sabotage the team, um, which was a genuine concern of mine. And so that was a relief. Uh, but that's all I can say, um, with, with, you know, conclusionary data. Um, and so uh, I guess even though I don't know who Dan Lanning is going to wind up hiring as an offensive line coach, A, I trust him to make a good choice. And B, like replacement value is all he really needs to hit, <laughs> you know, because yeah. cause replacement value, as far as I can tell, is all he did hit with Clem. And what I'm right. worried about is recruiting, you know, like.
0: The recruiting has to stay constant too, because I think that's one of the, uh, the keys to the Oregon success along the offensive line was their ability to rotate players because of the depth that they were yeah. able to compile.
1: Yeah. They didn't just have five that were like taped together with, with chicken wire and blasting caps, you know, like it was a deep line. They, they were playing eight, nine guys, you know, and they were comfortable with them. Um, and, uh and I mean, they were coming off of the mirror ball, you know, a couple of seasons, you know, from, from 2020 onward, in, well, which is two seasons from mirror ball. Uh, they were really rotating, like, like the way that a defensive line rotates, Um, like yes. it, it was extensive and like most offensive line coaches don't do that. And because it was so unorthodox, um, I was concerned about it. I think a lot of fans were concerned about it. I think a lot of fans sort of like invented reasons to be concerned about it even though the numbers didn't back it up it was a great offensive line performance um yeah. and it was sort of eye-opening it's one of the reasons why i actually like unlike what i was just saying about adrian clem i think there is affirmative evidence that uh, alex Miraball is an excellent offensive line coach and i really like like you were saying earlier we're all like constitutionally required to hate mario cristobal now um because like all college football fans turn into like catty 14 year old middle school students, you know, (laughs) Um, when it comes to this sort of stuff. And like, it's really disappointing to see Oregon fans, like attacking Alex Mirabal, despite the fact that the data indicates he did a really great job at, at, and did so in an unorthodox manner to deal with like COVID stuff, which is, that's interesting. And, uh, and others like making fun of his stature, I feel like is really over the line. Like, I don't
0: know, well, like, I mean, these are the same fans that are, you know, probably on board with chanting derogatory things toward the Mormon religion as so well. So, uh, know, you know man. what I mean? You're, you're, you're uh, going to have some. Some embarrassing moments with, with, with your fandom.
1: Anyway, I, I really feel like Oregon has had, you know, you said the last four or five years, and I jumped in rudely and said 20 years. And the reason is because, you know, I watch all of this Pac-12 film. Pac-12 is really bad at offensive line play, like really bad. Um, like, I think probably has to do with West Coast talent, you know, more than anything else, frankly. But I also think it's sort of like it becomes institutional at a certain point. Um, cause you know, offensive line has sort of be grown organically. Um, yeah. and, and, uh, and I think a lot of teams just sort of, I think they sort of fell into, we've never had a good offensive line where you need to design our offense other ways. And, and I think it affects the way that Pac-12 fans think about how a good, what a good offense looks like, you know, like they really get excited about super scrambly quarterbacks. Like, you know, the, the, you know, the guy that you should be, the offense that you should want to see is Tom Brady, you know, where he stands in the pocket and makes throw after throw after throw. And like, you don't see Tom Brady, you know, quarterback play in the pac 12 anymore because the offensive line play is so bad. And it affects the way that, that, that fans think about football and the, you know, what their expectations are out of everything, you know, every other aspect of the game um, in a way that I really feel like they, they could use some critical distance to examine. Um, And, 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 you know, studying all this film and, and like the the island of sanity is Oregon from Steve Greatwood to Alex Miraball to the year of Adrian Clama. Just like, yeah, Oregon has this nice continuity of really good offensive line coaches or at least like holding the line. Um, and, and I, you know, I certainly hope that, that continues. I look forward to doing the film study on whoever it is that Landing winds up selecting. Um, but it's got to happen, you know, like you, you, there's no such thing as a good uh, football team or championship, you know, quality football team without a championship quality offensive line. Um, and it's the hardest position to develop. And if you fall into a hole, it takes you forever to dig out of. I'm really skeptical about efforts to build lines out of the transfer portal. Although I guess, I guess we're going to test that proposition, you know, a little more going forward. I, you know, maybe, you know, I mean, it has, you know, the, 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 portal came about a couple of years ago and what I noticed is that for a lot of positions, it worked pretty well, um, yeah, particularly for cert- skill
0: players and stuff
1: for a certain, yes. And, and, which, well, basically people play at their talent level, um, and, you know, what it winds up being is like filling in potholes. Like, if, you know, if team A has two more players than they needed a position and team B has two fewer players than they needed a position, then great. You know, you know, uh, push the mountain into the valley and now you have two flats. You know, great. Um, uh, you're not going to get better play out of the guy, but you need the more, you know, more bodies. Um, uh, there's an exception which is quarterback you really do see fairly frequently different you know level of play at the quarterback position you know there's just sort of a i guess like you know clicking with the staff or the scheme or whatever it happens like hell it happened with bo nicks you know yeah. <laughs> like um you know i predicted yep, that a, one if there's one
0: thing we saw in 2022 it's that uh transfer portal quarterbacks can make a pretty hefty difference
1: yeah they they sure can
0: um <laughs> like there's
1: you know well you know quarterback performance is not just the quarterbacks determined by the quarterback it is it is also determined in large degree by the health of the rest of the team particularly the offensive line yeah, and the wide receivers exactly. and I mean like I saw that one coming from a million miles away because I saw you know I'd watched a bunch of Auburn film bizarrely for a bunch of different projects and like it was very clear that Gus Malzahn was systematically under investing in the yeah. offensive line in terms of size and the wide receivers in terms of just numbers like they usually only have one viable wide receiver for every year for like five years running at Auburn, like the, the majority of their passes were going to the running backs and the fullback. Like that's how yeah. bizarrely underinvested that team was. And if you want to make your quarterback look bad, <laughs> underinvest in your offensive line, your wide receivers. And so I saw yeah. from a million miles away, like they're. The conditions are ripe for Bo Nix to take a big step forward because he's a super talented dude and he's going to be stepping to a much better offensive line and wide receiver situation. Lo and behold, is exactly what happened. Um, yep. You know, like ultimately, Bo Nix is still in control of that because you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Like he had to make. You know, he had to, to make the decisions to take advantage of that, but he did. And anybody who didn't, who said, oh, no way that could possibly happen. The book is written on Bo Nix. It's written in stone. We know who that guy is. Like anybody who was saying that, you know, was not looking at the situation with very clear eyes because that is definitely a, a real possibility for the transfer portal. Um, and it's definitely a possibility when you, st- you know, step into a different, um, you know, surrounding player situation the, the on the other end of the spectrum that i had observed up until right now is the offensive line where i had basically there's two exceptions out of the like 40 um that i had observed um uh you know successful transfer offensive linemen like yeah. it, it they just seemed like to everything that i just said about how quarterbacks can really dynamically change with a different um, milieu uh the opposite of that for offensive line like it really seemed like the determining factor for their success is consistent coaching and gelling with their fellow offensive linemen and if you're transferring those are the two things that get blown up and so it's extremely rare, rare to the point where you can just practically say it never happens, um, that you can build a, uh, an offensive line out of the transfer portal. Uh, had been my observation up until now. And that every time that we would interview another Pac 12, um, uh, writer, for my, you know, my summer preview projects and they're like, oh man, they got an offensive lineman from such and such a place and we're all counting on him to be super stud. I'd be like, they couldn't see me doing it, but behind my microphone, I was rolling my eyes at him because <laughs> like, it never happens. Like, and it yeah. still never really happened. but Boy, there's a lot of action in the transfer portal for offensive lineman Mao. And maybe I'm wrong about it. Maybe it just lagged behind everybody else, you know, the other positions on the field. And, you know, maybe we'll see good, you know, Oregon's taken two, and I think they're counting on both of them uh, Cornelius and Angelou um, or Angelou um, uh, from Rhode Island and Texas, respectively, um, who I think are projected to be a starting tackle and guard. Um, and we'll see. You know, they're going to be in new schools and Oregon's going to have a new offensive line coach and uh, we'll see. Uh, I mean, if anybody can make it work, I would bet on Oregon because of its pedigree with offensive linemen, but like Mm -hmm. uh, it hasn't worked for anybody else, but so many teams this year are betting on it like it's way higher than in the past. And yeah, I don't know. It'll be, it'll be interesting.
0: Definitely. Yeah. Looking, looking forward to seeing how that pans out. It's uh, definitely like a new era we're entering, this transfer portal one. And like yeah. I said, uh, see, seeing it get to the point where you're talking about offensive linemen and building an offensive line through a transfer portal is just, it's just, and it's out there. But it's, it's yeah, reality. it really is. I mean, like
1: I said, it's the, 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 the two qualities that really seem to predict offensive line performance is, consistency with the same good coach, you know, for a long period of time. You know, like look at Jim Halchick at Oregon state and, and, and he's, you know, previously he was at places like uh, Arizona and Cal, you know, like he would be there for four or five years and he would, you know, coach guys up who were like, not very talented guys, you know, like two stars, three stars, some walk-ons, but he would get their, his claws in them for like five years and playing the seniors and they would play really well. Cause he's a really good developer. Well, that wasn't going to happen for transfers. You know, transfers weren't going to get the benefit of that. Um, and transfers weren't going to get the benefit of, uh, of like, living with fellow offensive linemen as their roommates and, like, going snowboarding, whatever yeah, it is that offensive exactly. linemen do together. Uh
0: like cohesion cohesion is the recipe for a great offensive line yeah Hard exactly in like, a way that like when you're bringing guys in and out like
1: which like it's kind of crazy to see you know quarterbacks who are like ostensibly leaders of the team kind of like parachute in take over you know like yeah. you know if this were a, a a movie you know you would not expect that at all um you know and yet quarterbacks appear to be able to do that um and offensive linemen appear so far not to be able to do that, but maybe they will. <laughs> like, may, like there is a possibility that everything that I have observed has just been well. That was true until now, you know. Like that was a, you know that that uh, you know the, the the transfer portal it took just took some more time to mature the way that we use it and the way that we scout uh, talent at peer programs uh, as opposed to at the high school ranks. Um, You know, it took us some years to develop the skills to figure out how to do that, you know, to make offensive line transfers work. You know, that is a plausible story and maybe this time next year i will be writing that story about you know what changed about offensive line transfer portal candidates um but maybe i won't maybe i'll be writing this time next year that i was right all along and that offensive line is just never going to work through the transfer portal and this has been a disaster um i'm gonna hope for the
0: former yeah
1: (laughs) i don't know man uh i don't know and people people should be taking out bets. You know, don't don't bet on sports. That's foolish and immoral. Bet on what articles I will be writing. That is a <laughs> moneymaker.
0: Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I hear I hear on that one. If if anyone's gonna cast a dice over uh over anything, it should be uh will will Adam be very angry or explosive <laughs> in his in his article this week. But. <laughs> well, if you were writing about basketball, I sort
1: of <laughs> I don't know, man uh all right i think that'll do it for us this week got
0: any parting words of wisdom for us adam um we're getting into into uh, uh my favorite part of the year we're, we're getting close to march madness i'm psyched i'm hyped uh really looking forward to this weekend i'll, I'll be down there this weekend uh, i'll be at the game against ucla uh hopefully next time we're talking basketball i'll be a happy camper and we're going to be in position for the ncaa tournament but we will see well, here I
1: thought you were talking about your favorite time of the year being the start of all these different um, winter spring sports. You know, tennis and and, and golf's going <laughs> on a trip. Uh, women's lacrosse is starting up against Xavier uh, in a couple <laughs> of days. Um, softball's going down to to Mexico uh, to play the Puerto Vallarta uh, uh, tournament. Actually, deeply jealous of softball. <laughs> yeah, we <laughs> oh, got hey. that one right.
0: Uh, the, yeah. groundhog may, the groundhog may not have predicted an early spring, but we're getting some early spring sports. So bring, them
1: uh, on. yeah, man, I, I think next week we're, we're going to wind up like doing a super article on Tuesday on like all these sports combined. Uh, cause you, know, it's all getting started up, um, you know, at the same time while basketball's heating up and we're getting ready for the Pac-12 tournament in March madness. Um, so yeah, fun times and addicted to quack, uh, Uh, But no need to bring your umbrella because it never rains uh, on this podcast.